And the rest of us, I wonder if you could turn to Esther chapter 3 as we continue this fantastic account. A historical account, a true account, but it's a ripping yarn, isn't it? It's an amazing story, and we're coming to the second episode this week. As we start to look at this, let me ask you a question. Do you expect life to be fair? Do you expect life to be fair? I think I expect life to be fair. We certainly teach our children that life is fair, don't we? So we teach our kids that if you do the right thing, you know, if you're a good citizen, if you do your homework on time as well as you can, then you'll be rewarded. But if you're unkind, you know, if you're a bit lazy, or you don't really try hard at school, then you'll suffer the consequences. And as Christians in this country, really over the last 50, 200 years, we have lived as though we expect life to be fair. Uh, that is for the church here at Chesington Evangelical Church. If we do the right thing, if we try and be good people, if we serve our community, uh, well then we'll have a, a good reputation. Uh, people will see that we love them. We expect life to be fair. The problem is that we follow the most loving, the kindest, the most compassionate, the most just person who ever lived, and they killed him for it. The one person who led the perfect life was put to death by the world. And in Esther chapter 3, what we meet, what it brings us face to face with, is this irrational hatred for God and for his people. Now, previously on Esther, we've seen that we're in the capital of the Persian Empire, Susa. The, the year is around 480 BC, and King Xerxes has just been humiliated by his wife Vashti. She won't come and parade before his drunken guests at his party. So at the suggestion of his advisors, Xerxes puts on a beauty pageant with a difference. You see, you don't enter this beauty pageant. No, the contestants are described as being taken. And the judging, well, that consists of one night in the sack with his royal highness. And if you please him, know what I mean? If you please him, then if he can remember your name, he might ask you back for another go. It's, it's a dreadful contest. Well, Esther is one of the lucky girls taken. And she's an orphan raised by her uncle Mordecai. She's got a knockout figure and she's a Jew. She's one of the people of God. Not that anyone knows that in Susa, because Uncle Mordecai has told her that we should keep our heads down. You know, keep control of our reputation. Don't let that trusting in the law business be known in public. Uh, well, after a year at the Royal Spa, Esther's number comes up. She goes to see Xerxes, with the result that Xerxes makes her queen. And we ended last time with Uncle Mordecai actually saving Xerxes' life. He overhears a conversation at the royal office where he's working. Big Thana and his mate Terry, they're planning to assassinate the king. And we read this. Have a look at chapter 2 and verse 22 with me. Chapter 2, verse 22. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. After these events, King Xerxes honored Mordecai. Surely, surely that's what we expect to read, isn't it? Mordecai. I mean, he's just done the rescue. Mordecai. No. King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamathada, the Agagite, elevating him 
and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. See, this shows us the first thing we need to see this morning, the reality of a hated people. The reality of a hated people. Because Haman, we're told, is an Agagite. Not just hard to say, but really significant. You see, Agag had been king of a people called the Amalekites back in 1 Samuel 15, when the Amalekites were at war with King Saul, king of Israel. And we know from what we saw last week that, well, Mordecai is descended from the family of King Saul. And what distinguishes the Amalekites is they hate the people of God. They want to destroy them. So as soon as God rescues his people in the book of Exodus from Egypt, the first nation that comes to try and kill them is the nation of Amalek. So Moses is recorded as saying this in Exodus 17. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Mordecai saves Xerxes. And Xerxes honors Haman, enemy of Mordecai, to the post of prime minister, Jew-hater, to top of the tree. Do you often feel that life's not fair? I mean, you work hard, you do all that's asked of you at the office, you put in the extra hours, and they get the promotion. You love children. I mean, your, child, your dad, your husband, he'd make such a good dad, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, but you just don't get pregnant. Oh, you've prayed over your children when they were young, you've tried to do family devotions with them every day, but you're still called into school, and one day they say they hate church and they hate you. You thought that they were your friend. I mean, you bought them that slightly more expensive birthday present, but when you get to school, you discover they put that picture of you on Instagram, and it's all that everyone else in the class is talking about all week. Life's just not fair, is it? That's the nature of the world we live in. The nature of a world made by humanity, choosing to reject the perfectly just and loving God. Made by humanity, choosing to love self rather than love God. Life's not fair. So look at verse 2. All the officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Perhaps it's just too much for him. Well, why do you disobey the the Lord's command, king's command, they say? But, But perhaps like a Jew of today, faced maybe with an ancient commandant from a concentration camp, Mordecai just can't bring himself to kneel before a man who symbolizes the sworn enemy of his people. The other people at the office, they don't understand. Perhaps they remember Mordecai has foiled an assassination plot of Xerxes. Look, look, you don't mind Xerxes, so, so why won't you kneel before his latest top man? Eventually, Mordecai confesses in verse 4, I, I can't, because I'm a Jew. See, this is about who he is. And like all yes men, they go off and tell the boss, because it's no fun being a yes man unless you can dob in the people who don't conform. And Haman's fragile ego just can't cope with this bit of low-level insubordination. Did you see what happens when they tell Haman in verse 5? When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Literally, he was filled with fury. A fury. 
that's driven not just by a deep down hatred of Mordecai, but actually a hatred of all of God's people. Because look what happens in verse 6. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing owner Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. This isn't a proportional response, is it? Now, one guy hacks you off. Let's wipe out the entirety of his nation across the whole of the empire. This isn't rational. No, this is the irrational reality of the hatred of God's people. This is part of the spiritual battle that's the heart of the world, that humanity hates God. And if you're in one of his, pe- one of his people, that puts you in the firing line. So Haman starts plotting. He's a bit superstitious, Haman. You can never be too careful when you're planning to commit genocide. So what he does is he casts lots as a way to choose the date. Did you see that down in verse 7? In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Now, for Haman, it appears that revenge is going to have to be a dish served up cold because the lot chooses almost a year later. Do you notice that? It's 11 months later that the day is set. Proverbs in the Old Testament, 16.33, says this. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You see, even as Haman begins to scheme, his plot is unraveling because the sovereign hand of God is in the background, ordering even the casting of the dice so that he can rescue his people. And not that Haman knows that. So he totters off to appeal to Xerxes' ego and Xerxes' greed. Look at verse 8 with me. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Uh, Don't don't worry about who they are, Xerxes. I'm not going to name them. They're just odd. I mean, they don't fit in. They're just different. Well, that's true, isn't it? It should be true of the people of God. But do you see what he says then? Oh, and they're disobedient. They're a real problem. Well, that's just simply a lie. You'd be much better off without them, Xerxes. In fact, you'd be 10,000 talents of silver better off. You see, the bribe that he promises in verse 9 is a huge amount of money. If you look down at your footnotes and you've got your glasses on, you'll see it's 340 metric tons of silver. This is like a, a Russian oligarch buying off the British establishment. It's an enormous amount of money. I'll make it a few billion worth your while, Xerxes. Oh, Xerxes, ah, he's light up. He's not bothered about who or how many people die. He just wants the quiet life and an awful lot of money for himself. So he gives Haman his royal signet ring, and he gives him the authority. And look what he says in verse 11. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. He doesn't actually mean keep the money. Now, it's just one of the things you say, don't you, if you're a king. Oh, keep the money. Now, it's a bit like when you go out to dinner with your, your rich friend, and it comes to paying... And, and you say to them, oh, well, I'll pay this time. You don't actually mean it, okay? You said that on the basis that every other time they've said, no, no, let me. I mean, you'd be completely stuffed if they actually said, oh, that's very generous, and 
I'm glad we ordered those two extra bottles of Dom Perignon. <laughs> no, he doesn't mean keep the money. He's expecting it to get transferred into his account. And so verse 12, then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of various provinces, and the nobles of various peoples. The 13th day of the first month was actually in the Jewish calendar the day before Passover. Passover when they remembered the mighty acts of God in judgment, rescuing his people from Egypt. But actually this Passover... All they're going to remember is the evil acts of judgment being plotted by Haman. Do you see the nature of the evil in verse 13? Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Destroy kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. They, they really like to be sure, the Persians, didn't they? It's like, like a, a legal document. They don't want any way out. Don't misinterpret it. All of God's people are to die. It's total ethnic cleansing. It's a dreadful edict. It orders a holocaust. And it's taken out by by Persian horsemen at top speed from the capital. And with the deed done, well, do you see the end of verse 15? The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Xerxes and Haman have a a glass of Chablis on the terrace without a care in the world. But, But around the city of Susa, people are saying to one another, did you understand this new law? Kill all the Jews at the end of the year? I mean, aren't the Jews the one who, who run the food bank down the corner of our street? Oh, well, my Jewish neighbors, they have, have us round for drinks and mince pies every Christmas time. They do keep inviting us to church, but they have us round. Oh, I thought the Jews were a law-abiding lot. I thought they did quite a lot for the community. Now, now this isn't anti-Semitism, though anti-Semitism is a dreadful evil. Now, you need to remember here that the Jews in Esther are the people of God. They're not the equivalent of the nation of Israel today. So if you're a Christian here this morning, these are your spiritual ancestors. In fact, the New Testament teaches us that all the promises that God makes to these people, the Jews, are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So the Christian today is the true Jew. And what does Jesus say about God's people as they follow him? Well, John chapter 15 and verse 18, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. You see, the people of God have always been irrationally hated. All but one of Jesus' apostles was, was executed for what they believed. And in every century since, thousands upon thousands of Christians have simply been killed for being Christians. It's no different in our world today. Even as I preach, people will have been killed simply for following Jesus. There was one study that came out last year that said they estimated 90,000 Christians were killed in 2016. That is one person every six minutes. Now, I expect those 
Uh, figures are massively exaggerated, but, but martyrdom is alive and well in the 21st century. I have on my shelf a book I've not managed to read yet called Christianophobia, How the Global Oppression of Christians is Being Ignored. And it's not a book written by evangelical Christians, and it's not a book recommended by evangelical Christians. It's papers like The Independent and The Guardian saying, no, that's right, across the world, Christians die for what they believe. And actually, we're seeing a rise in the irrational opposition to God's people here in the UK, aren't we? Increasingly, those who make the laws in our society are not content to have different views tolerated. They're legislating so that only one set of views must be celebrated by all. So it's increasingly hard for people to be faithful as a Christian at work, at school, in the college. See, if we seek to faithfully follow the person of Jesus Christ, we'll be hated for it. Now, if you're not a a Christian here this morning, you might think this is the worst bit of marketing I've ever experienced in my life. It might shock you to hear that. That the God who loves the world enough to give his one and only son for it is hated by the world he's made. So, So if you choose to become a Christian, not everyone will think that's a wonderful idea. It might be that some of your family resent that you've, you've got religion now. You've gone all religious. It might be that some people think you're just a bit stupid, boring. It might be that they're not so keen to promote you at work. You know, being a Christian isn't easy. But being hated doesn't actually finish off the people of God. Persecution has never destroyed the church. Extraordinarily, it seems to refine and grow it. I don't know if you have come across the horrible histories. They're a great thing in our household. They're history for children with all the gruesome bits left in. And in his book about the ruthless Romans, Terry Drury has a lot about the persecution of Christians. I I don't know whether Drury writes them as a Christian or not. But his comments on the martyrdom of Phibia Perpetua on March the 7th, 203 AD in Carthage, they're very telling. He records her diary from prison her longing for her newly born baby, her refusal to burn scented wood in worship to the emperor, even when her father was beaten in front of her. Finally, he records the way she amazingly asked for a pin for her hair after she was cast to the ground by a bull in the arena, and the way that a a nervous young soldier, having failed to hack off her head, she took his sword and guided his trembling hand to her throat. And then Deary comments this, the Christians died so bravely they made thousands of others want to copy them. Killing Christians in the arena didn't kill off the Christian church, it only made it stronger. And that's what we see happening with Mordecai and Esther. Because look at chapter 4 and verse 1 with me. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. See, this is the second thing. If we see the reality of a hated people, this is the repentance of a hated people. And Mordecai's reaction, it's not hidden, is it? It's out there for all to see. Mordecai before was the stealth Jew, but now he's very public. He wanders through the streets, wailing. He goes to the place of government, the king's gate. He's not dressed in his usual smart three-piece suit. He's in rough rags. He's poured the ashes of misery on top of his head. 
He's not allowed in, of course, because Xerxes doesn't like people wandering around, being miserable, spoiling all his fun. But Mordecai's there for everyone to see. He literally sits down amongst the other officials who've just grasped him up to the king. And he's not alone. Look what happens in verse 3. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. See, across the empire, these Jews who'd been content to to live in the background. If you remember last week, we saw that these are Jews who'd chosen not to return to Jerusalem, the city of God, when Xerxes' granddad, Cyrus, had said they could. Maybe these are Jews a little bit more compromised, a little bit more comfortable, rather enjoying life in the Persian empire, just keeping quiet and getting on. What happens is, suddenly these Jews stand up and they stand out. There is a corporate repentance. Because in the Old Testament, that's what sackcloth and ashes is about. It's not something to impress Xerxes. He's not going to be moved by all this moping around. No, this is something directed at the Lord. It's God's people in a visible demonstration saying, we need you. We depend on you. We are sorry for the way that we have compromised you. It's a cry to help, for help by God's people in their time of need. Now, now God isn't mentioned here, is he? We've seen that in the book of Esther. Actually, the word prayer isn't mentioned here. And it's because throughout the book, the silence about God just emphasizes to us that he rules over all things. He is ordering all things. He's not the one who just rocks up at the religious ceremony in the church or the synagogue. No, he is the God who is intricately involved in the life of every detail of his people, weaving together history for their sake. See, what what do you think God's doing in your life? I mean, what is God's agenda for you today? Do you know the Bible tells us? Paul says this in Romans 8, very famous verses, Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And our problem is that we draw up good and go, that makes life comfortable, easy, and everyone happy and rocking along fine. But but the next verse says, no, no, that's not good. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You see, God's agenda for you, for me, is to conform us to the likeness of Jesus. Because that's the most precious and wonderful thing that we could have. But because being conformed to the likeness of Jesus is to be drawn ever closer into our Father's heavenly love. It's to know more and more fully the wonder of a relationship with the God who made the universe. It is to be drawn into the intimacy of knowing the triune God. It's a beautiful thing to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And how does he do that? Well, Esther shows us. Romans 8 shows us. Through hardship, through struggle, through learning to depend on him in the midst of a a sinful and cursed world. He does it by robbing us of our false gods and our false hopes. He takes away our status and our comfort, our acceptance and our popularity. He even robs us of our health. Did you know that experience? I know some of you today know that experience in a very real way. That God, through your circumstances, forcing you to come back to Jesus. 
I think that's why we shouldn't be afraid if being a Christian gets harder and harder in the UK. Because actually persecution for what we believe will bring us a greater security in the love of God for us in Jesus. Let me ask you, do you really want the last 50 years of Christianity in this country repeated again? Has comfort and ease done the church good in the 20th century? Have we been all out for the Lord? Have we been passionate about his love and his love alone above all else? Have Monday to Saturday his kingdom consumed our thinking and our desires? I'm not, I'm not queuing up to be persecuted. I'm, I'm not saying, please bring on the bit of suffering. I'm just saying that the Lord will order the circumstances of our lives to bring us to love Jesus more, to treasure him more, to make us more like him. And if that means making our lives less comfortable, well, with bated breath, muttered breath, terrified breath, perhaps I should mutter, bring it on. Not, not that Esther sees that's the issue at first. Did you see what she does in verse 4? It's a very natural, chapter 4, verse 4. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to be put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. You see, what, what Esther initially thinks is, well, perhaps he's fallen on hard times. Perhaps she's worried that uh, Mordecai's forgotten the plan. Look, the plan is we keep the Jewish thing, the people of God thing, hidden. I mean, I'm in the harem here of the pagan king Xerxes, and Uncle Mordecai's just rocked up on the doorstep doing God stuff very, very publicly. Get the suit on, Mordecai. You've lost the plot. But Mordecai, he won't put on her glad rags. So she sends out Hathak to find out what's getting the old boy down. And Mordecai gives her a, an absolute detailed breakdown of the issue, including the exact size of the bribe that Xerxes has been paid. This is a death sentence sealed with a lot of dough. And then verse 8. He also gave him a copy of the text for the edict of their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go to the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Esther, step up to the plate. Now's the time to do it. These are your people. Beg for us. The problem is that stepping up to the plate involves placing your life in the hands of a drunken tyrant. Do you see that in verse 11? Look at Esther's reply. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. It's not just that Esther's life is in the hand of Xerxes. It's five years since she has become queen and it looks like Xerxes is getting a little tired of her. A little bit bored with her delights. As one commentator said, I very much doubt Xerxes has been sleeping on his own for the last 30 days. But Mordecai is not going to be put off. This is his only hope. And his reply brings us to the last thing we're going to see this morning. It's the resolve of a hated people. The resolve of a hated people. Because what Mordecai does is remind Esther of the truth of the gospel. He tells her what it is to be in the people of God. Look at verse 13 with me. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. 
You're, you're one of us, Esther. Don't think your rank or status will save you. We are your people. Our fate is your fate. And we stand together. I hope you know that this morning. Whatever you go through, we stand together. The Lord who has brought us to himself has united us in love for the Lord Jesus and for one another. Whatever you are going through in life, we stand together with you. And do you see the extraordinary confidence of Mordecai in verse 14? For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Oh, oh, relief and deliverance will come, Esther. The Lord always rescues his people. The Lord always keeps his promises. He's never failed to keep a word he said. God will bring us out of this. That's what the end of Romans 8 states. The end of Romans 8, Paul quotes a psalm from the Old Testament. For your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's that's Mordecai's position, isn't it? That's the Jews' position in Esther, chapter 4. And how do those verses go on? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what Mordecai believes. Esther, relief's going to come. It will happen. God loves us. That's why he can give the warning to Esther at the end of the verse. Basically, he says, Esther, if you're not with us, you and your family will perish. It's not simply the Lord saves his people. It's that only the Lord saves only his people. Jesus says much the same thing in Mark eight thirty eight. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with all the holy angels. If you won't stand with Jesus now then you will fall under his judgment when he comes. And that is far worse than any suffering or persecution this life can bring. And so, do you see what he says at the end of verse 14? And who knows, but you have come to your royal position for a time such as this. You know, Esther, the Lord rules over all things. You know, Esther, we are your people. You know, Esther, the Lord will save us. He loves us. He's never failed to keep his promises. And you know, Esther, who knows? This could be why the Lord's put you here for a time such as this. And so Esther replies in verse 16, Go, gather together all the Jews who are at Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. See, that, that's the resolve of faith. She, she says, I will identify with my hated people. You, you can imagine the news spreading through the palace, can't you? The queen's a Jew. The queen's a Jew. She's not eating like the rest of them. She's behaving in that, that odd, different, strange way. And Esther says, I'll stand with them, even if it means death. 
If I perish, I perish. Oh, faith's always dependent. She says, fast, pray, I need God's help. But faith is always active. I'm going to go to Xerxes, whatever the cost. And if we're going to be people who, who resolve in a world that hates us, then we need to believe the same truths as Mordecai presented to Esther. Or we need to stand together to encourage one another. We cannot stand on our own. You are my people. I am one of your people, united by the Lord. We need to be certain that we cannot be separated from God's love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord will take us to himself. Nothing is going to change that. And we need to know that the Lord has put us here for a purpose. Who knows? Maybe you're the only Christian in your family for a time such as this. So that by the way you graciously speak for Jesus, in the midst of mockery, God can save those who you love. And who knows, maybe you're the only Christian in your office for a time such as this. So that your colleagues can see that Jesus matters to you more than advancing your career. And God can use that so they want to know why he is so precious. And who knows, maybe you're the only Christian on your oncology ward for a time such as this. So the nurses and your consultant and the the other patients around you can see that with Christ, you don't fear death in the same way. And who knows, maybe you're the only Christian in your class for a time such as this. So that those other pupils who are making your life a misery by mocking you can see that you're more interested in what they think about Jesus than what they think about you. You see, being rejected, persecuted, should drive us ever close to the Lord. It should make us resolve to pray and be counted. It should make us depend on his love more and more and more. And who knows? Maybe he put us here in Chessington. Maybe he gave us a vision that God works through us. Maybe he's reminded us that actually people need to hear of Jesus. Maybe he's written on our hearts that nothing is better than knowing Jesus. Who knows? Maybe he's done that for a time such as this. Let's pray together. Maybe there's an area where you are struggling to be known as a Christian. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's with friends. Maybe it's with family. I'll ask the Lord for the resolve, the certain knowledge of his love, that you'll be willing to stand with him.